Hi everyone. If you like what you've been hearing, please consider subscribing to the Patreon at patreon.com backslash Hegelbon. That's H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. The Patreon's really the lifeblood of the podcast. It lets me dedicate the time that I need to play the games, to talk to our guests, to really set everything up and, and make everything as sharp as it is. Um, without it, uh, no cartridge really wouldn't exist the way it does today. If you don't like monthly pledges, I totally get it. Uh, there's also paypal.me backslash Hagelbon, and we can try and figure something out there. Or you can email me at nocartridgeaudio at gmail.com. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, and I will try and answer your emails as quickly as I can. Thanks so much for your support, and enjoy the show. on Twitter and today we are having well the podcast kind of started out this way if you ever go back to the first episodes it's really me just talking in a room uh, not until I had Alex Navarro on maybe around like episode 10 or so uh, did we actually shift to a um, uh, an interview format and so today I'm actually bringing that back a little bit partly because we uh, <laughs> we ended up not finding any interviews for this week mostly due to my lack of planning. Uh, and also partly because I had this idea. Uh, so as you might have seen, uh, I updated the Patreon uh, so that it everything on there, basically, all the content, all the audio content is $5. It's a flat fee now as opposed to all the varying levels. Uh, there are other incentives and stuff above it, but I shifted the uh, audio stuff to a flat fee. This is the only time I'll, I'll, I'll say it just because it's relevant. It's patreon.com slash Hegelbon. Um, H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N. Uh I don't bring this up actually to pitch the Patreon or to, to give you guys some sort of sales pitch into why you should support it. Uh, I actually bring it up because it's made me think a lot about uh, precarity in the gig economy. Because Patreon, in, in a big sense, is uh, gig economy uh, work. Basically, you know, I, I put myself out there. I put myself out there under no particular auspices except the company of Patreon. And I put myself out there as a free agent that you can pay me for material, which in short makes you both the customer and my boss. Uh, this is sort of the, the heart and soul of gig economy uh, logic, right? Where Uber basically gives you, say, a, um, a platform from which to leverage your own car into a small business without all the difficulty of, you know, building a taxi company <laughs> or something like that, right? I don't have to come up with all the infrastructure that would be necessary in working out monthly payments. And in, uh, in exchange, Patreon effectively takes my labor and valorizes it to make money. This is sort of the, the natural thing. I'm not even uh, vilifying them at this point. It's just a description of how the gig economy works. And so much like Uber, my livelihood on Patreon relies upon your generosity and also on um, uh, your 
pleasure, right? Like if I don't produce stuff, if I don't produce anything, the punishment there is that I get less money. The, uh, the incentive is that I get more. And so basically the, the base version of how the market works is distilled into this, uh, you know, very, very efficient and kind of ruthless version of, uh, capitalist logic where we get, um, you know, either you produce or you, or you die, right? Like it's, it's, it's a, it's not the kind of um, veneer of even classical industrial capitalism where like, you know, Fordism is having a pride in what you produce. Uh, gig economy, truly, you don't have to have pride in what you produce. You just simply need to produce it. Much like the capitalist doesn't have to like what they sell, they just need to sell it. Now the worker doesn't need to, uh, now the worker can live, let me say, by the same logic. Because of course, in the gig economy, you are both the laborer and management, um, which again is kind of the genius of the gig economy for the bigger companies like Patreon. They don't got to do much. Um, but with all that said, I started thinking about how much people might know about the concepts behind these. And then I started thinking about how they connect to video games in such kind of unique ways. So I wanted today to talk about, I just did talk about the gig economy, but specifically about the idea of precarity, which is something that shows up a lot, shows up, um, uh, I mean, all over the place. I, I kind of take my understanding of precarity from um, from Lauren Berlant and uh, the the book Multitude or um, and also Empire by uh, Antonio Negri and Michael Hart. Um, the basic idea, though, is not super, super complicated and we don't need to cite it necessarily. The basic idea is that uh, precarity is the natural outcome of having uh, what Marx calls a um, let's call it a surplus labor army or a, uh, well, surplus labor army works. The idea is that at any given point, there are people who are able to be employed. The capital always wants a certain level of unemployment because if you don't have a certain level of unemployment, then it's very difficult to fill the roles that you need to fill on any given basis, one. And two, you have to start paying people more money in order to get them to work at, say, your factory. However, if you have... 5% of the population that never has a job, um, at any given point, you then have a group of people who will accept much lower wages in order to gain employment. Um, as automation, or automation, excuse me, uh, continues apace, and as we start to see certain jobs be phased out, I'll use myself as an example, sort of English in the academy is much less of a hiring uh, field than it was even 20 years ago when it had its crisis, and far less than 40 years ago, um, that job's being phased out. There are jobs that are being phased out. Like, you're not going to go to school necessarily to be, I don't know, like an equestrian, right? Like, it's not, there. there isn't a huge demand for people who know how to groom and raise horses. Uh, 100 years ago, I'm sure there was quite a demand for that. So, uh, same with, like, steel, coal. A lot of the Trump um, era is based around this fact that some industries are just being phased out. Uh, and this is actually not native to capitalism or unique to capitalism. It, it simply is a fact of technological um, advancement. And the the idea that these jobs being phased out is not purely advancement is part of capitalism. That like you've trained for this one job and now you can't get another one. Yeah, that's more like that's more along the lines of a capitalist problem. Um 
and because people are losing uh, livelihood this way, they're ending they're ending up in this world of precarity, which is hand in hand, hand or hand in glove, however you want to imagine it, with the gig economy. So, what does precarity mean? When you are a precarious worker, you are very rarely or never uh, at a full time job. The idea is you are at a part time job, even if this is the the quote unquote retail part time where you work thirty two hours a week instead of forty. Um, the reason it's important that uh, for employers that precarious workers be non-full-time is that they're paid less, uh, one, and two, they are given no benefits. So you essentially get a much cheaper worker. Um, there's a strong sense of replaceability. Generally, at precarious jobs, you can be replaced at any given point, even at skilled precarious jobs. So take, for example, my adjuncting job. There are dozens of people who want adjuncting jobs. So if I decide that I don't want to teach anymore, and I would rather not accept sort of the, the low pay and the high work hours uh, that I have at my job, they could replace me quite easily. They would not suffer the university. And, and you know, that's not their fault. That's kind of how everyone's doing it. It would be silly, although quite nice of them, uh, to, to do otherwise. Um, and we'll get to that later. But this sense of replaceability, this idea of um, non-full-time work, non-benefited work, uh, also is paired with a sense of constant um, evaluation. So your contract generally is yearly, if not bi-yearly. Um, you're set to a certain kind of uh, regular evaluation wherein you can be fired or hired um, at the whims of, of your employers. And so this is contract labor as well, sort of going back to something like the Upton Sinclair version of the jungle where you sign on the dotted line, but you don't have very many employee protections because that's just kind of the job you've signed up for. Now, that's not to say that everywhere that has precarious labor is like the Wild West. Of course, there are still sexual harassment uh, um, bylaws. There are certainly things in the contract that allow you certain employee protections. But the employee protections that would come to, say, a full-time worker uh, are not there. Contract work means that you are signed on for the length of the contract, and up until your next contract, it's not clear that you're going to get another one, right? So effectively, what we get with precarious labor is that you have slightly lower pay than full-time with no benefits, which leads you to need to work slightly more or, in fact, often much more for the same effect one full-time job would give you. Okay, so this is the basic idea here. The question would be, why is this so popular? Why do we why do we allow this to happen? And so this also kind of has a long history. Let's take it back to uh, a Chicago uh, economist, not the one you might be thinking of, not not Milty Friedman, not Uncle Milt. Um, he of the um, he of the famous uh, capitalism and freedom uh, text that I mean, maybe we'll talk about at some point or another. Uh, but another uh Chicago economist named Gary Becker. Uh, Becker, I believe, uh, has passed away since this article. Um, but this is a fairly recent article by him, which is interesting. It's on human capital, and it's in the Concise Encyclopedia of Economics on the Library of Economics and Liberty site. Um, so, you know, you know the basic political slant of this site. I don't need to, to fill you in on that. But it's interesting hearing about it from the horse's mouth. So, in his own words, here is what human capital is. And this is, um, you can look this up on econlib.org. Uh, it's just called human capital. You'll find it real easy. <clears throat> to most people, uh, Becker writes, capital means a bank account, 100 shares of IBM stock, assembly lines, or steel plants in the Chicago area. 
These are all forms in the capital, all forms of capital in the sense that they are assets that yield income and other useful outputs over long periods of time. And so this is me again. This is the basic idea of management owns capital, workers own labor, right? The, the, the classic Marxist saw that is uh, generally seen to be true up until, say, like the midpoint of the 20th century. And Becker's understanding of how it changes is by way of human capital, right? So stocks, factories, uh, assembly lines, bank accounts, all of these things produce money and therefore are uh, capital, things you own, things that are the means of production, let's say. Um, but he goes on and says, but these tangible forms of capital are not the only ones. Schooling, a computer training course, expenditures of medical care, and lectures on the virtues of punctuality and honesty are also capital. That is because they raise earnings, improve health, or add to a person's good habits over much of his lifetime. The gendering here is his. Therefore, ec economists regard expenditures on education, training, medical care, and so on as investments in human capital. They are called human capital because people cannot be separated from their knowledge, skills, health, or values in the way that they can be separated from their financial and physical aspects, our assets. Now, two things here. The one is, of course, the overarching thing, which is that human capital is basically all the intangible stuff you have. So, you know, your skills, your education, your, uh, even like, as he points out, even sort of like your morality or your ethics or the way you were raised or, you know, all this stuff that he sees as intangible, uh, is what accounts for human capital. It's not like a factory you own, but it is something that you yourself are valorizing. So insofar as a capitalist can take something like a factory and valorize his, his or her investment and produce profit, you could ostensibly take your education in, I don't know, basket weaving or whatever, and uh, valorize that uh, in order to create a profit by becoming a, an expert basket weaver. Uh, that's a bad example, but you get the idea. It's sort of a fun example, at least. Um, or, you know, take a video game example. You could take your skills at playing um, Rainbow Six Siege and rise through the ranks and become a professional player and make money that way right? So you get money and acclaim that way. You could be a Twitch streamer. You could, um, you could be uh, me, like, <laughs> I mean, not, not that, not that you'd want to, but you know, like, or maybe you do, but the, the, the idea here is that you take any given sense of human capital and you can valorize it by way of, you know, uh, using it in the world. And of course, this isn't entirely wrong. Um, even Uber, for instance, for example, right? We'll go back to the sense of Uber or Lyft or, or any of the ride sharing services. Uh, they rely upon the valorization of human capital as um, the, you know, you need a driver's license and you need a decent car in order to sign up for Uber and Lyft. And both of those things, uh, a decent car is kind of physical capital, but your driver's license is human capital. You've learned how to drive and now you can get paid for it. Fine. The other thing I want to point out though, is that he lists this sense of human capital under the definition of, I'm looking for the actual line here. Um, okay. So he, he, he says economists regard expenditures on education and all this stuff as human capital. Um, and he sort of implies here that in fact, like these, these senses of human capital are both useful for you and useful for the employer that, that is uh, giving you them. So it's not just going to school, right? It's 
getting a lecture from your boss or from someone he brings in or she brings in to talk about punctuality as, as his Becker's example, or, um, you know, it's, uh, it's a computer training course and maybe you're given that computer training course as part of your work. Um, Again, this is human capital as understood as a profit motive, right? No one's going to put you through a training course if they don't think they're going to make their money back. Uh, So human capital can be understood in much the same way as traditional capital. However, the different thing here is that you yourself are now the, both the capitalist and the worker. You have to understand your, hmm, you have to understand your sense of value in this equation from both ends now, which is not easy. Um, and so going on, Becker, Becker says, education and training are the most important investments in human capital. Um, many studies have shown that high school and college education in the United States greatly raise a person's income even after netting out and direct in, indirect costs of schooling and even after adjusting for the fact that people with more education tend to have higher IQs. IQ, of course, is ridiculous. Um, and better educated and richer parents. Similar evidence is now available for many years over 100 countries with different cultures and economic systems. The earnings of more educated people are almost always well above average, although the gains are generally larger in less developed country. And I mean, he also goes on to start worrying that maybe the, the, the decline in this profitability, right? The fact that a college education doesn't actually get you that much more um, than a high school education uh, did in the past, that the ROI on that is lower. Um, the, um, he, he says, you know, maybe, uh, this is in like the fifth paragraph, um, there's a concern over whether the United States provides adequate quality and quantity of education and other training. So understand that it, within this framework, there's no questioning of the system surrounding the human capital. And, and you know, I'm not going to go too far into that this time around. It's more for the book clubs that are, again, on the Patreon. But the, the sense here is that human capital works. It's, in fact, the kinds of human capital that you put in that make it, you know, go up or down. Are you, take, are you doing the right education? Is it enough education? Is it rigorous enough? Is it relevant enough? Um, are you doing the things that, have, that you have to to become profitable? And so this opens up a, a twofold problem. Uh, well, let me say a twofold dialectic or a dialectic in and of itself, wherein you have one side that is scary, which is that it's now your responsibility to valorize your abilities and become profitable. Um, So you can mess this up or you can succeed. There's not going to be a parachute here. You have to come up with some human capital that produces value, right? Um, The benefit, though, the good thing is, uh, ostensibly, is that you're given a sense of self-determination, right? Um, You get to do whatever you want. You get to figure it out. You are your own boss, However, being your own boss means that you control your work schedule, but you still have to make the money. And going back to the idea of precarity, what human capital basically gets us is that we are precarious and have to earn, you know, we have to work 60 hours a week in order to make it all work. In other words, the lack of a full-time salary is always the core of increased human capital because it's not about choice, as Becker suggests, but about flexibility of labor. Finding people who are skilled in the same thing so we can sub them in and out. Again, going back to this idea of a reserve labor force. The other problem here is that you end up putting the cart before the horse. And you end up sort of suggesting 
reasons for things that are not actual material reasons for things. And even if you're a capitalist as opposed to a communist or a whatever, this could be a problem. So Becker writes, the outstanding, this is his last paragraph, the outstanding economic records of Japan, Taiwan, and other Asian economies in recent decades dramatically illustrate the importance of human capital to growth. Lacking natural resources, they input almost all their energy, for example, and facing discrimination against their exports by the West, these so-called Asian tigers, and that's really what they were called when, like, especially South Korea, um, when uh, it had its boom, they were called the tigers, the Asian tigers, uh, grew rapidly by relying, and here's the important part, on a well-trained, educated, hardworking, and conscientious labor force that makes excellent use of modern technologies. Well, fine, sure, they all relied on those, but they also relied on a generally unregulated system of salary and labor laws, right? Like, this is the kind of Fiverr problem where you see that thing like you, you know, you eat coffee for uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and uh, you know, get three hours of sleep. You're a, you're a grinder. You you work for Fiverr. That that like ad that everyone saw, um, like the the. The problem is that it's always read as innovation and it's always read as something important and hard work and, and things like that. Whereas the actual sort of reason this stuff works, and again, this is why it's bad if you're a capitalist or a communist, anywhere in between. The reason why all this works is not because of the human capital use, but because this labor force is conscientious because it has to survive. You're not allowed to, you're not allowed to stop working. You're not allowed to, to quit. You're, you have to keep working in order to live because there are a number of people who want to take your job and a number of people who could take your job because regulations are lessened. So you get this problem, right, where human capital is hard to critique. You're not going to tell people not to get an education, but it also masks the actual material realities behind things. So here's where video games come in. I've been playing a lot of games like Reseteer um, recently, but games like that I haven't played in a little while, but also are wonderful games like Cart Life or Stardew Valley, show us the dual workings of of human capital, wherein we get opportunity, but at the at the cost of our own sort of sense of freedom of time. Right? We sell our time. That's another way of thinking about precarity and the gig economy. It's not that you sell your labor so much as you sell your time, um, and in selling your time, you effectively contract out your labor. Uh, so, you know, it doesn't matter how many hours you, or it doesn't matter how many rides you give in an eight hour period, you've sold those eight hours. Um, and whether or not you get a lot of rides or a little rides is kind of up to you. Um, again, this is the, 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 the tricky part of being a, both the owner and the laborer within this. Um, so these shop owner games, uh, gamify this, uh, problem or this sort of like, uh, the, unique moment in time. Um, you control your time in these games, right? But you always contract it out because there's a limited amount of time. Um, you effectively farm out every aspect of your life in these games. Stardew is kind of interesting this way because you effectively are given leisure by lack of deadlines, right? The seasons change and you have to understand, okay, like I'm control, I, I'm under the whims of this sort of natural world and I have to, you know, I can only grow pumpkins in the spring and I can only, I'm sorry, in the fall and I can only grow, you know, I have to grow my, my fruit trees at a certain time for them to produce fruit. And if I want my farm to be built, I need to start it now and that kind of stuff, right? 
but it doesn't matter because spring repeats in the, in the next year, fall repeats in the next year. Your trees will stay up for a while. Um, you have time to do whatever you want and you can kind of take it at your own pace. In Reseteer, however, you're under this sense of, and actually cart life as well, in, in a much more realistic way, which is um, a little harder to, to sort of like deal with whimsically. Um, you're under the constant pressure of debt. In Reseteer, essentially the plot line is you are the daughter of an adventurer who used to own an item shop and, uh, and or yeah, kind of that. And he left to, to go um, adventure and he's disappeared. And, and basically he took out a large loan in order to go out and adventure. And now you have to pay it back or they'll take your house. Um, it's very whimsical, but that's the plot. And as you have a an item shop, you effectively have to go out and get items, put them on sale and then sell them. And there are only so many hours in the day, which means you have to spend some hours selling items. You have to spend some hours getting items. You have to spend some hours talking to people, trying to forward the plot because they will get you more items. You have to spend time contracting out adventurers so they can go and get you the items. And if you don't manage it correctly, you lose your house. And so every hour counts. Every hour up until the end of the day where you go to sleep. Reseteer is... Absolutely a whimsical game and fun and cute and, you know, it's a wonderful game. But it is also a nightmare because every waking moment of um, Reset, the uh, the item shop owner's life, is, um, you know, basically uh, farmed out or, or measured out for particular productivity in order to be able to pay her debt at, you know, every day in, in the game week, right? Um and the question would then be, like, so why even play Reseteer? Isn't it just, like, recreating that horrible sense of, of uh, existential dread in your own life? And no, right? These games hold a mirror up to the world, particularly in the case of card life, which is, like, deeply depressing and, and hard to deal with. This is the same in Papers, Please, as well. The sense of work in these games is is arduous, Um However, in playing it, in that they actually show up in leisure time yourself, like you have to play these games during your leisure time, um, you actually start to see these stressors in a different way, right? You aren't approaching them in the normal way of work, which is like, oh, work's a bear. Like, that's work, though. You're seeing this gig economy and precarity from its own standpoint. So this doesn't apply to those of you with full-time jobs necessarily, although it can certainly, um, it can certainly in some cases apply as well. But particularly to those of us who work in the gig economy or in part-time work that is also full-time work, the kind of like weird uh, world between um, full-time, part-time, uh, gig, non-gig uh, work, you know, as you play these games, you start realizing how unnaturally packed this kind of view of the world makes your life. Um, you know, you have to compartmentalize your day in these games, and doing that in your leisure time might seem cruel, but it's the best possible way of demonstrating actual controls on us that are put into place by the logic of human capital, which means that, you know, as you notice, hey, I don't have any time to do anything like, oh man, I really want to go explore that dungeon um, more. That's the part of the game I like, but I have to sell some items because I like I need 10,000 whatever's picks in Reseteer by by Thursday. So like I got to sell some items and boy, I hope someone buys them because uh, if they don't, I'm in big trouble. And you're suddenly realizing like, actually, this is me. Like all the stuff I do is work 
and I like some of it more than others, and I have to focus on the profitable stuff and not the profitable stuff, and it it reveals this way that working from home, being your own boss, the gig economy, um, all all descendants of human capital effectively and, and Becker's concept of human capital produce this world wherein your leisure time is down to nil. You basically do not have a period of time where you cannot be working. So effectively, you have to maximize and maximize your entire life, right? Every single waking minute has to actually be useful and profitable and valuable. And that can be exhausting. And insofar as these games are exhausting and you realize why they're exhausting, then you can cast an eye to your own life and say, oh, wait this is exhausting too, and here's why. Ultimately, though, the lesson here is not an uplifting one, and I'm sorry for that. We don't have much choice. Take me, for example. I got my PhD in English, which is a broad sense of human capital. Like I, It's a clear use of human capital. I pursued education to its, its final point, right? Problem there, I have a limited number of ways I can use that human capital and because I got it, most jobs expect me to utilize it. So it's not like I can go get a job at a garage. They don't want me there. I don't have the correct human capital for it. I have to teach. I have to give some sort of sense of, you know, education out there or knowledge of, of literature. And in a world where that is not particularly valuable anymore, uh, from the market, from a market standpoint, I'm not casting aspersions, um, the the trap there is, oh, well, what else can I do? And there are some ways around it. I mean, I'm pursuing the podcast and, and all sorts of things, right? Like I'm being a dad. I'm, I'm, I'm finding other values in life. However, this is a perfect example of sort of being trapped by your own human capital and, being, and having to fulfill it in certain avenues. There are ways of thinking about this that get you out of it, but precarity is a self-fulfilling prophecy in so many ways. And until we actually sort of recognize it for what it is, it's going to keep compounding itself over and over and over and over again to the point that we just feel completely overwhelmed and without your time entirely. Anyway, thank you for this. This has been interesting. I've been wanting to work through these thoughts with you for a little while, and uh, I hope you'll forgive the kind of uh, half book club, half, uh, you know, a video game episode of this one. Um, those of you who like the general no cartridge may find this one a little dry, but um, I hope it's been helpful. I hope it's been useful and I will see you this week. Oh, and check out the Patreon where we're having um, on Wednesday, we're going to put up a uh, new interview, a, an interview exclusive to the Patreon with, uh, with Leon L-E-Y-A-W-N, your favorite bird uh, comic musician, game designer, uh, funny Twitterer, and he'll be on talking about his new album. So uh, it's definitely something you want to check out. And um, there's all sorts of other stuff on there. If you like this episode, you'll like the book club stuff as well. But mostly, thank you for listening. Um, rate, review, all that stuff. And uh, I'll see you next week.